Hey, Prairie Pod listeners. I'm Megan Benage, regional ecologist with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. And I'm Dr. Marissa Allering, lead scientist with the Nature Conservancy in Minnesota, North Dakota, and South Dakota. I'm Sarah Bosick, wildlife biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service based out of the Morris Wetland Management District. And I'm Mike Worland. I'm a wildlife biologist with the Minnesota DNR Non-Game Wildlife Program. We're part of the Minnesota Prairie Conservation Partnership, and we're here to help you discover the prairie. Discover the prairie. Discover the prairie. Discover the prairie. Welcome back, Prairie Pod listeners. It's season five, and Mike and I are feeling alive. We can't believe it. We're back, ready to share some amazing prairie knowledge with you all. Mike, how excited are you? Yeah, I'm. It is so nice to be back. I was just going to point out, you couldn't help but rhyme in the, in the very first sentence of the season, could you? I you had like to rhyme. rhyme. It's a poem and I know them and I love them all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is really nice to be back and nice to see you again, um, even though we see each other pretty frequently on meetings and so forth. But it's still th- nice this is a fun occasion. Together. This is fun. We get to share our love of the prairie with other people. What could be better than that, Mike? So you have done four seasons. That's nuts. I know. I'm like a you're veteran. A, you're a pro. I should be better at this. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. We're all human I think, I think you're pretty good. Oh, thanks, Mike. I think you're pretty good, too. Wow, this is Thank getting you. too mushy yeah, for me. Let's move on. So let's let's move on and share the love. We have expanded the pod squad this season. We are so excited to be welcoming Marissa Allering, lead scientist with the Nature Conservancy on board, and Sarah Vosick, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service biologist. You heard him in the open. We're pumped. They're here with us to share their love of the prairie also and to just give us different perspectives. We right. benefit, right? When we learn from different people, when we hear different experiences and we pull all that knowledge together to form a beautiful prairie hole. I mean, the pod has always been about partners, partnerships, but um, we're increasing the role even more here and giving them even more buy-in. And um, I think it's just a, it's a great move. I know. And people don't have to listen to less of me, which is... People don't have to listen to less of you or people get to listen to less of you? Less of me, yes. Oh, okay. I just want to be clear for our listeners. <laughs> My, so it's, it's, I, it's, it's a win-win scenario is what I'm oh, saying. Well, I, this is a lot of self-deprecation to start off a season with joy. <laughs> I like listening to you, Mike. People right. like you and Thank they you. love you and you know stuff about prairie. Mm. Okay. Oh my gosh. Okay. We and, always do a quote, right? To kick off the season. Yeah. And we have a great one. It ties into our topic, which makes me even more excited. Do you want me to just jump in, Mike? Do you want me yeah, to give it? Please read it. Yes, go ahead. Okay. So our quote to kick off this season is from Dr. Raywin Grant. She is a wildlife, specifically a large carnivore ecologist. She's a conservation scientist. And I love this part of her bio. She's a nature storyteller and advocate. In addition to all that, she's a National Geographic Society fellow. So she gets to travel around the world and share her wildlife experiences with people to make us more educated and more appreciative about the role that wildlife play in our life. And so I could think of no better person to kick off this season than Dr. Raywin Grant. And here's her quote. I grew up in big cities and it wasn't until I was 20 years old 
a young adult that I had my first experience in nature. I went on my first hike, I pitched my first tent, and I saw my first wild animal. And without a doubt, it changed my life. So I was just going to point out, I mean, she she's 20. Like, that's not old, right? That's <laughs> basically a kid, you know. Um, I mean, I'm kidding, but to a 51-year-old. This is when she was 20. She's not 20 now. I know that. I know okay. that. But my point is, like, it does, it's, you're, you're, you are literally never too old to gain an appreciation of the natural world and start becoming more active in the natural world. Um, it doesn't matter if you're 20 or 101. Um, oh, well, it, you're, if you're 101 and you're out exploring the prairie, hats off to you. Yeah. That's what I want to be. I want to manifest thinking, you know, that. All we need, we all need our, 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 our like gateway hobby or gateway activity. Into like, the prairie. And, or Yeah, or whatever ecosystem, but preferably some prairie, right? But, um, <laughs> I mean, this is the prairie pot. Just bird, Birding is a key one, of course. I say that in a completely non-biased manner. But, uh. It's okay to explore and discover. And because, you know, some of the things that I hear from folks is like, I didn't know how. Like, I didn't know how mm -hmm. to connect with nature. I didn't have access to nature. And access to nature is a whole other podcast for a whole other day. But mm -hmm. not knowing how, we want to start this season off with giving you some tips for how you can help out, give a hand to the prairie, and also get involved, get immersed, get in there. There's lots of ways that you can be helpful and become a Prairie Advocate. I want to give a shout out to Prairie Pod listener Ellen Thomas. She came up with this great idea. She first posed this question to me because she's moving to Minnesota. She's excited about all the work that's happening here with Prairie and she wanted to help. And so then she shared with me some ways and groups that she has found that she can engage with to get onto the Prairie, get her boots on the grass and wildflowers and be a helpful friend. So. There's lots of different ways that you can volunteer in prairie restoration and other projects. There's bird counts, there's insect counts, and I'm going to give you some examples. Of course, there's the DNR's website. You can go to, you can use your old Google machine and type in volunteer DNR, and it'll bring you to our hub page, which is a great page that links to all of the different divisions and groups within DNR that are doing work where you can engage with them. Specifically, you can become a DNR scientific and natural area site steward, so you can actually adopt a site and help manage it, check on it, maybe provide some of those bird counts or insect counts. You can adopt a wildlife management area, similar idea. We have the non-game wildlife program. We'll be launching a volunteer page soon, so keep checking back to our website for updates. But currently, you can volunteer on our loon survey page, and you can monitor a loon family to see about their nest success. Who doesn't want to watch loons all day? That sounds like a great way to volunteer and spend your time. There's also the Prairie Enthusiasts, the Minnesota Master Naturalists. You can volunteer with the Minnesota Land Trust, the Prairie Chicken Society, Pheasants Forever, Watershed Districts, different parks like Three Rivers Park di Districts. Also, you can volunteer with Great River Greening. The list goes on and on and on. The Nature Conservancy, I feel like we could just keep listing things. So bottom line is, Mike, that there are lots of ways that you can get in there and help the prairie and advocate. And I couldn't think of a better way to start this season than to share some of those ideas with you. So thanks to Ellen. Yeah, that was a very good suggestion. Yeah, okay. the, the key is to get 
for many of us, not all of us necessarily, but for most of us, I think it, it, it helps so much to get linked with other people to help help get us started. Prairie people. Prairie people. Yeah. Prairie people will help lead you onto the prairie. Okay, so we should we move on to today's we subject? Should. Let's yeah. talk about it. I'm I'm excited about the subject, of course, number one because it's wildlife. Um, I say that in a non-biased manner, but um, oh, strange for a wildlife biologist to predators. Say, okay, predators. It's a it's an interesting, fun thing to think about because it's something that we often don't really think that much about when it comes to prairie. You know, we so often we think about predators in a forest context. You know, but but. It's equally applicable to a prairie context, and I'm so I'm, I'm excited about the subject today. I'm super excited about it, and I love what you wrote in our intro notes where you said that predators can sometimes get a bad rap because they, well, sometimes eat the cute little furry critters that we admire, <laughs> and that is just part of the circle of life, right? Circle like, of life. Prairie predators play a pivotal role in the ecosystem. How many P's did I get? I feel like a lot. I was proud of myself. There. Yeah. Thank you very much. They're a key ingredient of prairies. And I think it's something that deserves a whole podcast episode. So let's jump right in and hear from our fabulous guests. Yeah. Uh, Kristen, do you want to start and introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you. I'm super excited to be on Prairie Pod. I'm a avid listener, first time contributor, so it's pretty great. Um, so I appreciate uh, you guys recognizing that I've worked with prairie predators in my past. I will keep up the alliteration as much that as I That was can. wonderful, just beautiful. Um, just to introduce you uh, to me, I'm Kristen Hall and I work in the non-game program. I'm the State Wildlife Action Plan Coordinator. Uh, my career to date has been working mostly with birds and I will admit something I'm not a great audio birder because I have uh, limited hearing so I am a visual birder which is awesome with grassland raptors so that's my um, my background and what brings me to the what's for lunch episode is that I've worked a lot with open grassland birds um, and I'm going to throw in a weird one for you guys I've worked with Sandhill cranes, which you think that's not a predator, but we've actually witnessed them eating other birds, little ground nesting this. birds. Yeah. yeah. So uh, not only is it a complicated system, but there are surprises every day. So I wanted to throw that little tidbit in there that it's not all raptors that are doing the job. Um, there's a lot of very interesting birdie bird world out there. Um, but my my background and what I'll specifically kind of focus on today, because I have worked with a lot of different birds in my my career, but rough-legged hawks, Swainson's hawks, currently working on kestrels, um, have a lot of background with birds of prey, and happy to be here with you guys today. We're super happy you're here too. Welcome, Kristen. Yeah, Marsha, go ahead. Well, I am very privileged, privileged to be here on your first podcast. I'm very happy to to share some information with you. I'm, uh, I'm the only, I found out I'm the only Minnesotan in this group. Um, I grew up in, in Minnesota, in central Minnesota. Um, my family was very much um, geared towards the outdoors. So I've always had an interest in conservation and wildlife. Uh, in my teen years, I was introduced to David Meech and his work with wolves in Northern Minnesota. And that's mm -hmm. what really kind of sparked my interest in my younger years. And as I was in, when I was in college, I was um, able to get an internship to work with badgers um, with a graduate student at the University of Minnesota 
and that kind of sealed the deal. I, that's when I decided I want to do research um, on predators. And so I was, after college, I was, uh, after actually grad school, after my master's degree, um, I did a couple temporary jobs and then I managed to get a job at Northern Prairie Wildlife Research Center. Uh, so I, that, that was so lucky. And uh, that's where I've been for the last 30 years, uh, conducting research on primarily uh, prairies, prairie predators, primarily predators of waterfall. But I've also worked with um, two species of fox that were endangered or, or um, threatened. One not on the prairie, it's a Channel Island fox that's endemic to the Channel Islands off the coast of California, it was a, th a threatened species. We managed to get it off of the threatened list. And I worked with swift fox, which is a prairie species. It was native to the short grass prairies um, from Southern Alberta and Saskatchewan all the way down to Texas, New Mexico. Um, and, and so I worked with them. But, but ultimately my career was very much focused on mammalian predators in the prairies. Um, and I'm just giving you a, a little sidelight with Kristen, uh, another species that's a little bit odd that you don't think about as being a predator. We've seen uh, white-tailed deer eat duck eggs and chicks um, out of their nests. So, um, yeah, little FYI. I, I <laughs> should be the secret alerts here. I the know. secret lives of instead of the, the secret, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the secret lives of animals you thought you knew. Yeah. That, that's right. So. Yeah, Marcia, if you don't mind, let's just start let's start with you um, for our, our first question here. Thinking about predators and the and the roles they play in the prairie ecosystem, you know, quite often we talk about how they are important to ecosystems, but then it, you know sometimes it's a challenge for me to sort of articulate why we should care about predators and prey and why they should be there. Can you tell us more based on your experience? Yeah, I can. Um... I can. When Northern Prairie Wildlife Research Center, when I first started there, it was one of only five wildlife research centers, federal wildlife research centers in the country. And its main focus was, and its mission was to conduct research that would better provide an understanding of waterfall nesting in the prairie pothole region and, and other birds too, not just waterfall. But um, it, the, the idea was to develop man management strategies that would help improve waterfall production on federal lands. Again, I'm a federal biologist and we've got the refuges and mo most importantly for my work is to better find better ways to manage our waterfall production areas, areas that are purchased by duck stamp money. So they're essentially purchased by duck hunters. And so the, the goal was to try to improve production in those areas and find management strategies to do that. Well, when I entered um, my career at Northern Prairie, I was mentored by a guy by the name of Alan Sargent, who is an amazing predator biologist. And so I got lucky and was under his wing for many, many years. Um, and the interesting thing about when I started was that people weren't recognizing how important predators were to the um, to production of waterfall. It was habitat, habitat, habitat. You know, we got to get the habitat, which is important. I'm not saying that's not important. But um, the early work that Sarge, Alan Sargent did and, and I was able to jump on was identifying the importance of individual predator species and um, get a better, better clue as to what was going on with waterfall production. And so um, most of my research was um, looking at individual predator species and then identifying their importance and developing um, ways we can monitor those species 
Um, and then most importantly, um, to evaluate the potential tools that we might have to manage predation. I'm saying manage predation, not necessarily predators, but manage predation on these lands that we're responsible for, for managing for waterfowl production. So it's interesting. So the it's a little bit counterintuitive for, for many uh, that, you know, we think about predation, it, it, it's, it can do nothing but hurt these waterfowl, right? They eat the birds, they eat their young, they eat their eggs. But you're saying here that the predators had a role in in that in that relationship that was important, that was beneficial for the waterfowl. Huh? Um, I don't know if I would go necessarily that far, other oh, than the fact okay. that there's that meso predator release thing go that goes on, and there's a balance in the predator community. Um, so the you know the, the the top end predators, the coyotes, fox, um, at one time wolves, probably suppress. I know they suppressed some of those smaller predators which would mm -hmm. ultimately be more um, abundant. Um, but can you, uh, can you explain that, that phrase meso predator release? Yeah. When you've got, for example, um, when, when we lost um, coyotes, you know, coyote densities went down, um, raccoon densities went up, um, probably badger densities went up. And so we have this, the smaller predators what are called the meso predators at an advantage um, in, in terms of uh, their population growth. That's what I mean by that. Some of those mesopredators, have they had have they had positive responses to human-dominated landscapes too, right? Like Absolutely. Yeah. Um, particularly raccoons and red fox um, were, you know, at, at to the advantage and probably skunks to a certain degree. Um, they all had had, you know, that and badgers um, had a negative influence by um, the, the onset of people. Um, so yeah, there, there's, there's, it's complicated. There's lots of ways that things can go, but human activity has definitely had a, a major impact. Um, and I don't know if, the, the, if you want me to go into it at this moment, but particularly in the canid communities, what's gone on historically has been um, pretty dramatic on the prairies with the wolf dominated um, prairie ecosystem back in the mid 1800s when the European settlers came. Um, and then swift fox were here then too. But once we had the European settlement, there was a persecution of the, the wolves, their populations went down, but that opened the door for coyotes. And so coyote numbers started to increase and we saw a, a, a flip there and then by the late 1800s, far more ranchers around, they decided that this growth of coyotes was more than they could deal with in terms of their, their, their um, livestock production. And there was coyote persecution at that time. And, and, and this is done primarily with poisons, um, things that we can't use now. I mean, these poisons and then at one point aerial hunting. But so once the coyote populations were suppressed, that opened the door for red foxes. Um, and one thing I probably should have said earlier is that what happens in these canid communities is there's interspecific competition. And the, the largest canid wolf suppresses coyote populations. Coyotes avoid wolves. They don't necessarily, wolves don't necessarily kill them, but coyotes avoid them because they're harassed. And mm. so, and the same thing is true between coyotes and red foxes. Um, red foxes avoid coyotes. And so mm. if we've got a coyote dominated landscape doesn't mean that red foxes aren't there but they're squeezed into little areas 
and coyotes fill most of the space. And, and so we've got, and red foxes are probably the most, of those three, they're the most important predator of wa waterfowl, nesting waterfowl. They, are, they do the most damage for several reasons. One, when they're, they're the dominant canid in the landscape, there's more mouths per square gotcha. mile out there because they have smaller home ranges and they fill the ter they'll fill the area. And then, and they cache eggs and the others don't do much of that, but red foxes, that's just innate. They cache the eggs so they don't, they don't have to satiate. They can take more and more eggs every night. I mean, you hear stories about red foxes caching golf balls. Um, you know, on, well, that, that's just a little egg to them. They just take that golf ball away and bury it. You know, and so there's there's reasons that red foxes are are a negative impact, have a very strong negative impact on nesting birds. Um, anyway. It sounds like to me what you're describing as you're describing what happens in the canid groups right and how some take over when others are decreased you know, like i just want to sing the circle of life song because what it sounds like to me is that this is all a very complicated system and the interplay between predators themselves are complicated and so it's not just predator prey dynamics it's predator on predator dynamics and as we remove things from the complexity of this system we change and simplify in a way that's not necessarily advantageous to the prairie as a whole, right? Because it's about balance. And it sounds like we're definitely not in balance. There's truth to that, but also recognize there's always probably been dynamics in the system. And oh, um, nothing is- part of the system, yep. Yeah, it, it, but the problem is that, that as human beings, we've greatly influenced that dynamic. Um, right. and, and the, the onset of agriculture into the prairies has had huge influence on what goes on. You think about it, historically ducks could spread out and nest everywhere. And of course they were always geared into water and wetlands and, and focusing on that when they settled in, but agriculture has come in and now we've got all these acres of cropland out there and we've got little patches of grassland where the ducks want to be. Well, you know, if you're a predator, you don't want to spend time out there in the spring on that black field or that newly seeded field. You're going to go right to that little patch of grass. And so we've got the chance of encounter um, goes up immensely because of how our landscape is, 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 um, is composed at this time. Yeah. yeah, it's fragmented. And, you know, so, so one of the tools for managing predation is to try to put more grass on the land. You know, give ducks. Oh, I more. love that. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it's true. That was I mean, well put. I like. Yeah, that helped a lot. Yet another reason to get more grass on the landscape. Yeah. Yeah. Like yep, absolutely. And and there's data that show that in areas where um, actually Northern Prairie, uh, Ray Greenwood worked in Canada and some of these huge, huge grassland areas, and and down here in the states too. But the the ratio or the uh, relationship between grassland and nesting ses success is a positive correlation. You know, the, the more grass, better nest success. We like to hear that for sure. Yeah. I wanna pivot a little bit and hear from Kristen, same question. This is great. I'm, oh gosh, I can already tell, I wish this was a three-part episode because <laughs> I'm already learning so much. So speak to us a little bit about raptors and their role in the ecosystem. And you can tie in some of the historical context also if you'd like to in your response. Yeah, I think it's fun that um, both Marsha and I are 
tag teaming this because I can bring us to a, a different level of the prairie that is um, like at the the grass seed level. So we, <laughs> well, we have talked about the sky. Like you're going to take us up high where the raptors it, are. It gets to the sky, but first you got to start with the seeds on in the soil and who's eating those seeds or who's cashing away those seeds. And we've got small mammals all over the place within prairies that rely on those um, native seeds. Actually, they, they don't do well in non-native grass-dominated settings because those seeds are different um, and provide them with different levels of nutrition. So in in my little microcosm of the prairie, um, where it kind of all ties in, is that we've got these uh, small mammals out there in the landscape that are being eaten by just about everything. But one of their main predators are the aerial predators, and that is your kestrels, your merlins, your prairie falcons, um, all your budios, your open grassland raptors. So um, I was in my work, I was fortunate enough to work on rough-legged hawks in the winter. Um, so dealing with the winter landscape, they actually breed up on the tundra, a little bit of a different uh, ecosystem than prairies, but still open landscape. And they're small mammal specialists. So they really hone in on small mammals. They have feathered tarsus and tiny feet. Um, they can take other birds, but their their main prey source is small mammals. So um, and we'll get into this later, but one of their their main threats is people. Um, and, and I can talk about that when we get into the threat section. But well, before you keep going, you <clears> said a couple cool words there that I want to make sure our listeners know. You said Budio and Tarsus. Give me a quick what's a because for folks Sorry. who don't know how that's spelled, it's B-U-T-E-O, just so you know what we're saying. Uh, what's a Budio? I am a nerd. That's those are just words come out of my mouth without even thinking about it. Sorry, nerd alert. That's what you should no, say when that. No happens. need to apologize. We just want to make sure everybody's tracking what you're saying. You're an expert, Krista. Yeah, no, yeah, you're nerd, expert. Nerd is more appropriate, but a budio is a um, uh, I think red tail is one of the main characteristic budios that we have in North America. They're your open grassland raptors, so they're the open land. Uh, raptors. There's also the occipiter, which is your forested um, landscape raptors. So they're not only just raptors, but then they get into their little separate categories as well. So Budio is open open lands raptor. And then Tarsus is their legs. Um, so most of them, like if you see a red tail perched on a utility pole or a wire, you can see their, their yellow leg. Um, in Rough-legged hawks, they're they're feathered tarsus, so it goes all the way down. That's why they're called rough legs because it's feathered all the way down to their feet. Um, they're super fuzzy and warm if you ever hold one in the winter, which is a rare, <laughs> rare thing to do. But <laughs> uh, please, uh, listeners, don't go try to hold a hawk. Just no, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't just hold a hawk. That's true. <laughs> we met as a wildlife biologists that are trained and do studies on them. Also, I'm going to start referring to my legs as tarsus because I just want to. <laughs> it just sounds better. Look, look at my non-feathered tarsus. Right. <laughs> I was, and I was going to say, I, I am rough-legged as well. So. Yeah. <laughs> okay, That's this has gone down a road. Please continue, Kristen, talking. Well, aside from the small mammal piece, that um, is a nice prairie dynamic. And it is dynamic. I'm glad Marsha mentioned that. Like, it, it isn't a static thing where you just have this predator eats this thing and that thing won't get out of control and eat that thing. Um, it is constantly changing and that flux is flux is important. Um, you know, the that prey predator cycle where you've got the 
bounce and prey and then you get the bounce and predators we have i don't know snowy owl eruptions are caused by those things and those are normal those are um, part of that dynamic system that we really need to recognize as being normal not a anomaly that's just part of the system and how it kind of plays out Another piece of uh, the raptor part is that they do eat a lot of insects, especially um, our kestrels, which is my, I have to say it, it's my favorite bird. And it's like saying it's your favorite kid. I'm putting it out there. I'm sorry. They're I've just heard a few people favorite. say kestrels are their favorite bird. They're just which so one awesome. is your favorite kid just while we've got you on the line? Just kidding. Uh, moving on. <laughs> I love them both equally. For oh, there it is. <laughs> no, kestrels are phenomenal they're tiny and fierce and um just they play a really important role they do eat a lot of insects especially when they're nesting and that's part of their protein uh base and it's more so than you would really realize they're known as like the sparrow hawk or small mammals as well but they really do eat a lot of insects and that's another balance in the prairies especially for like your grasshoppers or um things like that like you need to have some sort of checks and balance in there to kind of make sure that we don't have a plague of grasshoppers right. kind of clearing out the prairie plants as, as they need to establish. So those raptors have a really great niche that um, is super fun to learn about and understand. Uh, Kristen, can you talk to us a little bit? I know a lot of these hawks, raptors, are, are having some trouble and you touched on it earlier. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, their status and, and what and what's going on, the threats for them? Yeah, you know, one of the main uh, drivers is the, the habitat change and that fragmentation in the landscape, um, the non-native grasses that are coming in, that affects their prey base. All of those things are part of the, the piece picture as to why they're declining. Um, I, I would throw out that our climate issues are definitely first and foremost in that there's a lot of asynchrony in um seasonality of things now and so you've got um different different things blooming that cause different bugs to come out at different times and if that's not in sync with the nesting season of your kestrel for example then their their base or of nutrients that they're currently relying on is changing and those adaptations aren't happening as quickly in the wildlife side as they are on the landscape side. Um, so I think climate is a, a major issue and a major reason for these declines. Um, and then there's there there are, uh, being a predator, there is that persecution piece of mm -hmm. things. Um, you know, it it is, it used to be a mindset to control predators to do your part for conservation and that is not yep. at all the case and i'm sure marcia has a lot to say about that as well you really do need predators in the landscape um i worked in montana with rough legs and they were constantly shot off of utility poles mm. um and one of the big pieces of our research was finding out that they were shot and not electrocuted because that's another uh -huh. main factor for raptors that perch on these poles is they do get electrocuted um, and the utility company had been working on retrofitting problem areas and was wondering why are we still finding dead hawks under these poles. Um, so we were out there researching the hawks anyway and we um, we were able to collect them and take necropsies, which is a autopsy for wildlife and um, find that they were actually shot. And then that, mm. that drove on an education campaign that these 
birds, specifically rough legged in winter, are small mammal specialists. They're not preying on pheasant or, um, you know, some of the mm -hmm. the economic high level birds that people want in the landscape. They're they're actually not your competition. They're actually helping you out. Um, so it's it's a lot of education and based on how these systems are complex and it's not just the predator is the bad guy. Um, they really are helping the system in ways that are um, maybe not direct, but um, that secondary complex system is is a tough one to understand and get out there to people to understand. I was going to say, to say that uh, my dad, he, he told me when he was, you know, a boy back in the 40s and 50s, you know, living in a, in a farming community that he was, uh, you were duty bound, you were obligated to shoot raptors when you had a chance. Like if you didn't, you were doing something bad. You're taking a, a predator. Um, yeah. And out. that's, yeah. that's a, that it, as much as it was a historic context for, for doing your part for conservation, it still happens today. And sure. it, it, it is um, kind of that mentality or tradition that is hard to, hard to break and change. Um, but I do think that with, I don't know, more news and more evidence out there of seeing how the landscape is changing and how, you know, I used to drive, kestrels are a great example. I constantly hear people say, I used to see kestrels on the wires all the time. Mm -hmm. And now I hardly see them at all. And that's in a 10 year period, what's been happening. And they really have declined precipitously in the last yep. 20 years. And we're really trying to find out why. Part of my, my research um, with the DNR, um, with help of bunch of bunch of bunch of people that love kestrels as well is trying to figure out where they're most vulnerable and what those um, gaps are in our knowledge to figure out what is the main threat for these birds. They eat a lot of insects. That might be where um, that's what I suspect is the window, but possible. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Because insects are also declining. <laughs> what are? Would you say insects? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Marsha, um, in the in the mammal world. Um, you've talked a little bit about their some of their complex species interactions there. What do you think? Um, what are the threats to some of these species? And you know, are some of those mammals uh, in trouble? Um, in, in terms of the predators, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any really in trouble, um, but they do have human impacts that affect them, and um, and that's you know part of what we saw in the historical context too that it was human activity that had a, a great deal to do with what happened with the canid community. And then okay. thus, the, yeah. But um, the, most of these mammals are not very specific. They're, most of them are pretty opportunistic. For example, I would be willing to bet um, quite a bit of money that if you took all the ducks off of the, off the, the prairies, the mammals would do just fine. Um, mm. They would have, you know, there wouldn't be any problem at all. Um, but they can be impacted by human activities. And so some of it's shooting, you know, uh, back in the, the, the 40, 30s, 40s, um, North Dakota was far more, the population was dispersed. And there were a lot of people out here, surprisingly, um, but they were mm. dispersed. So every little farm kid had their 22. And anytime they saw a hawk or a badger or whatever, um, they're plunking at it. So the, there was a depression of populations just because people were there um we're not we don't have that kind of population out here any longer so i think the bigger problem is is um is just uh 
their interactions with each other. And then there is persecution. There's no doubt about that. In region, it's regional or it's local. Um, it's not necessarily throughout the prairies. Um, and also, but these animals, are, you know, there's also disease issues. You know, skunks suffer from rabies regularly, but most of the time we never know it. Um, we can lose a whole part of a population in a region and then it, it, they work their way back. Um, they're so adaptable. Their re reproductive rates are so high. They disperse so well that they can make it back. And that's true with many of the predators. Um, you know, high reproductive rates, um, they, can, they can withstand a lot of um, pain and still the population can recover. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, I don't think it's quite as, um, it, it's not as critical as it is with the hawks, I don't think, um, in terms of how these mammals can adjust and adapt and make, make a comeback when they have them, you know. Another brief example, we had mange in fox and coyotes in North Dakota and, and other places in the late 90s. It, I mean, it just, you'd hardly see a fox or coyote around you know, for years. And now they're making their way back. It's taking a little time, but we have a really strong coyote population and, and foxes are starting to make a comeback now too. So, um, and that comeback is reliant on having the habitat there, you know, so that they can have a comeback. Well, to a certain degree, but um, the challenge to that is, for example, the city of London probably has one of the highest red fox densities in the world, um, in the town. Chicago is filled with coyotes. Um, you know, there's, there's telemetry studies working on coyotes and fox and raccoons in the city of sh Chicago. Um, these animals are so very pliable. I mean, they're adaptable. They can, they can, they can do it. But they do, you know, I, I think it's that the persecution by humans is probably um, a stronger, has a stronger impact um, than the habitat might because they can live anywhere. And there might be differences for some of the species, right? Like oh, wolves, absolutely. Yeah. With a larger I, home range, you might, then habitat yep. might go higher up the list or, or not. But yeah, yeah that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, For well, sure. and, and how, how very um, omnivorous they are, you know, what, I mean, it, skunks eat a lot of insects, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they eat a lot of insects. Um, so, the, you know, they, and, and sort of, you know, I wouldn't put it a lot with foxes, but they eat insects too. They eat a lot of grains. Um, waste sunflowers are, are big on um, many predators' list of things to eat. You know, you can go into an, a sunflower field um, with the, the chaff or whatever that's left after harvest, and they're eating that. Um, uh, so yeah, they're, they're, they've just, they're very opportunistic and they can deal with some of these, these changes, these dynamic changes. That's super interesting. I wanna ask, there's a couple things I wanna hit on quick. And one is we've been talking about kind of their their role and how dynamic the system is and it can change and the predators can ad adapt and respond to those changes. As we know, when you're on a prairie, nothing ever stays the same. That's the golden rule of prairie management. Get comfortable with change because that is what the prairie is able to do season to season. And it sounds like the wildlife that are adapted to the prairie are well equipped to deal with some of those changes. One thing I want, Kristen, I'm wondering if you could just summarize really succinctly, if someone said to you, 
why do we even need predators anyway? What are their benefits? We've kind of delved into the long story, and I'm wondering if you can give me the quick and dirty short story of what are the things that you would put into a list to say, this is why we need predators. I know, that's a hard one. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, thanks. That is, well, you know, I actually, um, my, my most succinct answer is somebody's got to clean it up. <laughs> like and and that goes to that goes to the the carrion eaters of the world that goes to like there's a lot of um turnover in this system let's say and if we didn't have our vultures and raptors and things to kind of come along and make use of those existing proteins on the landscape then then it would be quite a mess out there so i think um it's a tight little system when you think about it in the in in the triangular shape of here's the prey well here's the herbaceous base and then there's the prey base that eats the herbaceous and then there's the predators that eat the prey um and that system keeps keeps things kind of clean it, it would be a mess without predators Is i that watched a video enough? that was wonderful i watched a video of a, a badger burying a carcass uh, I can't remember if it was a bison carcass or if it was a cattle carcass. I'm not quite sure what it was, but it was phenomenal. This badger like managed to basically store the remains of this animal underground, I imagine, for several meals <laughs> for its family. And it was just incredible. It's digging capacity and its ability like the the video was time lapsed. So you're just watching and it's just like dig, 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 bury, 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 dig, 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 bury, bury, bury. It was fascinating. Like they have an incredible ability to recycle, essentially. Yeah, they're good recyclers. I, I'll give them all the credit. Recyclers, yeah. garbage carriers, whatever you need to call them. They're awesome. <laughs> if, if I can add a little bit here, go, go on Please to Google do. or somewhere and um, just go into, um, look at how wolves have changed the ecosystem in Yellowstone National Park and how the improvements in the whole ecosystem because they replaced or they brought wolves back, they were able to reduce the numbers of elk that were destroying the habitats. And it's, a, it's just a, a fascinating um, interconnectedness that just re returning wolves to that ecosystem has improved the park immensely. It's, it's a fascinating story. I'm glad you mentioned that one, Marsha, because that video is also super cool where they do a time lapse of looking at um, the what am I trying to say? The rivering habitats. So yeah, the riparian. edge of the river, basically, riparian, where there yeah. was, yeah, riparian, thank you, where there was lots of sediment and erosion because the movements of the ungulates in Yellowstone were basically changed when the wolves were brought back. So it led to a decrease in overgrazing or just kind of loafing in some of the same areas. And I thought that was super neat. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad you mentioned that one. We, um, so hey, ask can, a question. Megan, yep. Sorry to interrupt. That, ma that makes me think about bison. Can, is this some? Is this something else that we're missing from today's prairies? Is is um, is not not just bison themselves and their very obvious role in, as a disturbance, but um, the relationship between bison and other predators, like particularly wolves, and how that impacted, you know, bison movements and how that led to uh, maybe. Now I, I'm really making things up as I talk here, but like 
That's what we like to hear on the science-based podcast. I just, I think there's got to be parallels between like what we're talking about happening at Yellowstone and what we're talking about uh, in this system in Prairie. Uh, I just suspect there was something similar. It's yet another challenge, yet another thing that's missing from today's Prairie that we have to somehow compensate for in our management. Well, yeah. which brings me to my next question, Mike. Do we need to manage predators? Like that's a that's a question that we get asked a lot as wildlife biologists is or told that that's something that we need to be doing. And I think Marsha gave a really great illustration earlier of, OK, well, if you take away <laughs> the wolves, then you have coyote. If you take away the coyote, then you have fox. If you take away this, then you have that. It seems like an impossible thing to try to manage them and keep up with the dynamics of this system and sort of we can't set aside that humans are part of this system now. So how would you even, is that something we should even be doing? Marsha, I punt that to you. Okay. Um, you, I, I think you have to look at it at different levels. And if you want to look at the prairie ecosystem, I think we've got problems being able to tackle that. But you, and I'm not talking about, I, I never talk about managing predators. I talk about managing predation. And you can manage predation, particularly at a local scale. You know, right now, for a for waterfall to sustain their populations, they have to have 15 to 20 percent nest success. In a lot of places, they're not making that. You know, there it's much lower than that. And so we do have some responsibility to try to improve that through management. And you can do that through things like those peninsula cutoffs and islands, or in some way to separate the carnivore, the carnivores from. The, the nests um, that does it does work under the right conditions and so there there's or you can um, manage for coyotes rather than foxes you know so it, you know you, you don't want to kill all the coyotes out there leave some and it, it's okay to harvest them I'm not going to tell the fur bearers that they fur bear um, that they are the um, hunters that they can't hunt coyotes they can you got to keep the numbers down but it's okay to have them because they reduce fox densities. Um, so that's a biological way that you might be able to, to approach canid uh, or um, predation issues. I'll yeah, be honest, I part. like something that you said earlier. I wanna just touch on it really quick because it makes me super nervous when we start talking about one of our strategies being uh, kind of manipulating the landscape or engineering the landscape to a certain end, like where we're creating artificial islands or we're we're reducing connectivity. So much of what Mike and I talk about on the Prairie Pod is increasing connectivity. So yeah. it always makes me a little nervous when we take this engineering approach, I guess, a little bit to the landscape. So something I want to make sure we call out that you said earlier as one of the best things we could do is to get more habitat. To try Absolutely. To try Absolutely. to rebuild and make connections yep. is maybe our first first try, right? I, our, if there's tears, right? That's like yep. level one gold star. Let's try to build more habitat and get in better balance. Yep. That's number one gold star. It just takes longer. It takes it longer. Does. than Yeah. And But I agree with you. It's number one gold star, without a doubt. We need more habitat. And we need, you know, the, the one study that I didn't do, I retired too soon, is there, you know, there's we want these big grasslands, but then we have to decide where we want the wetlands because the wetlands are drawing the predators into the grass. So um, if you can keep the predators towards the edges, because the birds will still be in the middle 
you know, they'll, you know, if we can keep, then these are mammalian predators now, and I'm speaking specifically of fox and raccoons and skunks are really drawn to wetlands. So if we can manage the landscape, you know, on a big scale to try to um, make it advantageous for ducks to be there um, and not encounter predators. Um, yeah, I mean, that. I, like I said, that's the one study I didn't do that I would have liked to have done. But, um, you know, it, 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 landscape, lots of grass is great. I love that. Wonderful. Lots of grass is great. <laughs> hey, I just want to tagline. Yeah, that, that would be a good one. Um, so yeah, we've, we've covered raptors, we've covered mammals. I just want to think for uh, one minute about the diversity of predators that are out there on the prairie. Um, and yeah, we're kind of just scratching the surface here with with mammals and raptors, even though they are, of course, super important. But you, how about the insect world, right? That That is has a huge influence on the ecosystem as a whole. Um, so I just wanted to bring up a couple of, well, actually one is not an insect, um, one is a spider, but two, two little critters that, that are really cool that I encourage the listeners to check out. One is the assassin fly. Okay. And people usually call the assassin fly a robber fly. I want to start a campaign to go with assassin fly because it's a much... <laughs> It's a much cooler name and it's much more biologically accurate okay but um the, these are these are in in, in prairie and uh oh, Mike, um, i'm just i'm just sorry to interrupt you i'm just thinking here you know chris hauser has a great video he's a lead scientist with the nature conservancy he has a great video about how to bring people into the prairie uh -huh. And uh, it's, you know, a great little stick figure progression of how us scientists, I've right, get really excited about these things. I don't think if you're a person hey. who's listening and you're new to the prairie that calling something an assassin fly is going to make <laughs> you excited about taking a hike in the prairie. No. I'm with you. It's a more accurate name, but maybe we should just ease people into it a little they bit. They kill other bugs. They assassinate okay. other bugs. Okay. See, so you want to come to the prairie because the, these flies are here and they're they're helping. But they're they're really cool looking. Yeah, just go online and look at some. Well, better yet, of course, go out in the prairie and find them. Once you once you get an image in your brain of what they look like and the, and the, and sound because they they buzz very loudly. Um, oh, great! I can think of nothing less terrifying for a newbie prairie <laughs> hey. than a loud buzzing of the assassin fly. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're not scary, all right? They okay. really aren't. All right. Let's call it a 007 fly. <laughs> <laughs> a little more mystery, a little more, you know, intrigue. I think that assassin might be rough. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me okay, about so that's, 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 that's one very cool, one very cool insect predator. Another one is the, is the crab spider. So these really are beautiful little spiders. They're and they're little, like less than an inch in diameter, and they're and they're on flowers, and they're they're slow. They can't see very well, but they're excellent at sitting there, being uh, in camouflaging. They actually will change color to match the color of the bloom, and they'll ambush insects or or other bugs as they come to the flower to nectar or whatever. And um, yeah, two very interesting, and and cool predators in the in the ecosystem in the prairie ecosystem well this is great we could keep talking about this forever we've got to move on to our next section but this has been 
just so enriching and I really it's recommitted me to wanting to do a predators part two because there's so many things to think about and talk yep. about and and work through and so many different groups of predators because as Kristen was describing those different levels of the ecosystem right in the really simplified way that we look at it like there's things that are eating seeds there's things that are eating plants then there's things that are eating <laughs> Those things that are eating plants and then there's things that are eating those things and it goes all the way down but it's so much more complicated than that it's the web right it's not this things don't necessarily stay at the same level all the time they're integrated and especially like marcia said if there's if there's omnivores in the system then it's just all out the window and everything's crazy complicated in the best kind of way so let's move on to our next section part of the podcast where we recommend a book, a blog, or a paper. And so I'm going to start with Marsha. What is your pick for the day? Tell us a little bit about this book you chose. Well, I, I chose a book called The Invention of Nature, Alexander von Humboldt's New World. It's by Andrea Wolf. And it, it ties into your talking about how this is all complex and tied in because that's exactly what, what von Humboldt did. He was an 18th century basically a modern a version of a modern environmentalist that we would have right now. He knew about everything and he knew everybody. Just the most fascinating man, traveled the world, um, knew uh, people like Thomas Jefferson, influenced people like Darwin, um, and just an incredible mind that this man had. But he was basically showing the interconnectedness between um, the world and the and, and treating the the earth as an organism and how it's all interconnected and you know he pointed out that we could very catastrophically damage our earth by our human activities so it, it seemed like apropos for the time and um it, it, just such a fascinating man it's my favorite book i think everybody should read it um just really interesting i'm going to check it out now yeah Me it's, too. it's worth it yeah really good yeah. what's your pick Kristen? My pick is um, a blog, and I'm I'm not a blog, um, or <laughs> you know it it just came to me at the right time. Um, it's from a mentor of mine early in my career. I worked on American Dippers, which if you want a fascinating bird to talk about, I could go yeah. forever about that bird. But um, my mentor and now friend at the time. Um, put together this blog. She's a conservation biologist and co now conservation writer, and it's called Words for Birds. So it's just www.wordsforbirds, all one word, .net. Um, and she has various examples of her writings. She um, touts other organizations that do good work for birds. And one of the pieces in there is Summerhawk, Winterhawk. And that's, um, it's just so right on for what I got to talk about today. So I thought I'd throw that one up there. Her name is Sophie Osborne. She lives in Montana and has done great work for raptors and just bird conservation in general. So Birds for Birds is pretty awesome. I love that as we describe these different references, you know, one of the things that I want to make sure is clear, and I think if you're a regular listener to the pod, you already know this, right? We talked about how important partnerships are, but the partnerships expand beyond Minnesota. We can benefit what folks in Montana are doing, what their prairie work is doing. We can benefit from what's happening in Pennsylvania, Illinois, Idaho, Iowa, oh my, 
right. It's everywhere. Like where there's prairie, we should be learning and connecting with each other because that is part of figuring out this big complex system. And as our colleague always says, no one person has all of the resources, tools, or abilities to figure it out. So when we put our heads together, which is the whole part of what this podcast is about, we are just better for it. So I just had to point that out because I think it's nice that we're mentioning all these different states today. Hey, Megan. Yeah, Mike. Take a hike. I've been waiting so long to say that after our, <laughs> after we stopped recording. Take a hike, Megan. Oh, my gosh. I think we should all hike together, Mike, since we're talking about partnership. All right, Marshall, let's start with you. Where are we hiking today? Well, one of my favorite places to go is in central North Dakota. It's called Chasley National Wildlife Refuge. It's where there is a um, at one point, it was the largest pelican colony in North America. Um, it's since dwindled a little bit just because of rising water and the island is getting smaller. But it's uh, native prairie and it's away from the world, uh, kind of out there where nobody else is. And it's just a lovely place to spend an afternoon and watch the pelicans soar and you know, lots of other birds um, that, that it's a great place for birding. And it's, it's very peaceful. That's where I like to go. Oh, I would like some of that. I like pelicans. I'm just fascinated by them. Their their bills are just so big. It's improbable. <laughs> uh, how far away is that? Is is Chase Lake from uh, Theodore Roosevelt? Um... Well, Chase Lake is closer um, to. It's it's right in the middle of the state, basically. Okay. Chase okay. Lake is. Yeah, it's. Yeah. I was just thinking if I made a trip to Theodore Roosevelt, I could. You you just stop pop by. off. Stop yeah. off the freeway in Medina and go north in 15 miles and you're there. Sweet. Um, and at one point they had um, about 19,000 nests on the island at Chase Lake. Pelican wow. nests. Wow. Yeah. So um, it was ma a major, major event out yeah. there. Yeah. That's awesome. Chris, you want to talk, oh, you wanna talk about pelicans, call me because I studied them also. So. Arsha, what have you not done? Yeah. I'm, I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> we prefer the word experienced, knowledgeable, expert. What's your pick? Well, gosh, all of these I'm like, oh, I love Theodore um Roosevelt National. Yeah, I do Park. too. I do too. That would be my second place, yeah. So shout out to that. Um I also like Neil Smith Prairie Restoration in Iowa, but that's another Thing I'm going to talk about right out my door um, because I am a full-time working parent of goats and dogs and kids and I don't have much time to take a hike but oh my god do I need it all the time I need to take a hike so is it in that order goats and then <laughs> chickens and children is it is that the order of it's oh, dynamic okay. just like all systems it's very oh, there it is <laughs> um but I will give a shout out to Browns Creek. It is right. It, I actually do live on part of the trail. Um, I live on a little lake called Lake McCusick in Stillwater, Minnesota, and Browns Creek kind of runs around that. And um, there's a biking trail that gets you right to downtown Stillwater. But the prairie piece of it that is so cool is it's kind of a, a nice example of the prairie um, hardwood transition zone that is in the middle of our state. Um, and there are little openings that they have restored or cleared of invasives and whatnot. And those openings provide you with a bunch of edge. Um, and 
when if you're a birder edge is such a great spot to stop because you get a ton of different birds um a good a good friend of mine joanna eccles who works for american bird conservatory she lives right up the road for me and we go there um with other larks a awesome group of people that i bird with and uh we see the warbler wall is what we call it in the springtime and you just stand in the prairie part and watch all these birds come out as the sun comes out and they are singing and it is awesome and it's just right out my door you are lucky warbler wall. wall i mean you can't beat it we also go and listen for like woodcock when they're doing their sky dance in the spring i mean it's it's a gem and it's so close Man, I just nice. thank you both so much for being here and sharing your knowledge and your expertise. We yep. definitely, Mike, you said it, we scratched the surface. That, that This was a light scratch on the surface. There's so many more things we could talk about with predator dynamics in the system. But I learned a couple key I'm gonna, takeaways. I'm going to interrupt you, Megan, because the oh, mention boy. of grazers, that's, I hope you guys have like seven episodes dedicated to grazing in the prairies and <laughs> And that, because that's a huge, like we, all he said was word bison, and that's all it got. It deserves a lot more attention. <laughs> I know. Sure. We did a whole how not the cow, but we, there, all of these topics, I mean, we could go on and on. We're just building in work and job security for ourselves because, because <laughs> of the prairie, this is what I learned today. I already knew this, but this reinforced the prairie is ripe with change. It's a dynamic system. The wildlife that live in it are dynamic. And it is just going to take hundreds and thousands of us to figure this all out. That's what I learned. Diversity, habitat, yeah. all things that are important. Oh, man. Next week, we'll be chatting with Angela Miner, Ben Carlson, and Travis Eisendorf with the Nature Conservancy. And they are going to share all of their secrets for how to make reconstructions more diverse through targeted seed harvest and production. So what? More seeds, so of course. What? That's what we want to be sowing. More seeds. <laughs> so we will learn uh, the more diverse a restoration is, the better chance it has at survival in the face of climate change, invasive species, and so much more. I'm pumped for this episode. Pumped for the season, season five. Feeling alive. I will say that I was very happy. I mean, you know, we, we co-hosts of you, Megan, are rotating. I'm happy that I got this one. I really enjoy talking about predators. I and thought wildlife. you were gonna end that sentence differently, but I'm glad that you took it in the direction that you did. <laughs> oh, you're gonna say I'm glad I get a break, but this is oh <laughs> this is well too. that too yeah. This is good too. As always, you can find all of the links of the things we talked about today, our resources and references on our website at mndnr.gov backslash prairie pod. This episode was produced by the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources Southern Region under the Minnesota Prairie Conservation Partnership. It was edited by the magnificent Dan Ryder and engineered by the fabulous Jed Beecher. Man, we'll catch you next time. What should we say? See you later, alligator. That's not a prairie predator. <laughs> I need a, we need a, something that rhymes with hawk. I was just going to say, let's all say sparrow hawk. Well, but that doesn't, that leaves Marshall. We say like sparrow oh. hawk hawks. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> this just be terrible, Mike. I can't just think of anything clever to say. How about, how about everybody has to eat? So. Everybody, everybody has to eat. To eat.